I'm glad you're all here to hear Pastor Scott. And, and you know, one of the things in battling um, this sin of sexual immorality is you have to have a built-up knowledge of God. That's part of winning the victory over lust. Um, you can't do it if your knowledge of Christ is not built up. Um, you'll never win the battle. And, uh, you know, I've been so blessed to know Pastor Scott for such a long time. Obviously, he's been a friend of mine for 20 years now. Um, but he was he was one of the first guys I confessed to um, when I was struggling as a minister, as a minister alongside him. So it, it you know... It, you know, we have that kind of relationship, and it was so beautiful to be able to go to someone that you not only look up to as a mentor, but you know he's a guy who's full of grace, and um, and that he would listen to you, and he wouldn't just react. Um, and it's so beautiful that tonight he gets to be a part of the Better Pleasure Conference and speak to you guys on the issue of grace from the book of Titus. So why don't you guys welcome Pastor Scott Richards. Well, there I sat in an office in Costa Mesa, California, sitting across a desk from an individual uh, that, quite frankly, had been on the cover of Time magazine. His name was Pastor Chuck Smith. And I had the opportunity to sit down and talk with him on that day. And you might ask the question, how did you feel that first time you had an in-depth conversation with Pastor Chuck? And I will tell you, I felt like a complete idiot. I felt like a complete loser. I felt like someone that was wasting this man's time. Now, how do you get into a situation like this? Well, uh, it goes all the way back to what drew me to Christ in the first place. What was it that caused you to receive Jesus as your personal Savior? Well, in a nutshell, for me, what transformed me from a professing atheist to a follower of Jesus was the simple truth that God loved me unconditionally. Nobody had ever told me the simple truth that Jesus Christ loved me. All the conversations, all the debates, all of the exchanges I'd had with Christians, not a single one of them had ever said to me that simple truth, God loves you. And when that came across to me at a Billy Graham movie, in the middle of a song by Randy Stonehill, the simple lyrics, Jesus came into the world to show us the way and set us all free. And when he died, he was saying, I love you. Well, that drew me to Christ uh, like a magnet. They, they did the invitation as they always do at Billy Graham organized events. Come on forward. You know, everyone whom Jesus called, he called publicly, as Billy would say. And so they gave the altar call, and I was sitting there thinking, oh, I can't go forward because my friends are going to think I flipped out, and my football coach who ran our Fellowship of Christian Athletes ministry is going to think I was a big phony and hypocrite for going to his meetings and not believing in God. I don't even remember getting up. Next thing I knew, I was halfway down that aisle, and I prayed and invited Christ into my life. And at that moment, you would think, as has been already intimated in the, the video, that, you know, you live happily ever after. The credits roll and the people walk out of the theater and, you know, it's just smooth sailing till heaven. But not so much for me. You know, it's interesting how personal issues run real deep, even in terms of our walk with God. And, you know, again, I have always been a person that uh, was desperate for approval. 
In fact, uh, approval was doled out in my family of origin always in terms of achievement. You always had to achieve something, and then you were okay for five minutes. And, you know, the funny thing was, uh, you know, that approval, that acceptance with those you need it from the most, your own family, was always like the carrot on the end of a stick. It was always just out of reach. And the funny thing was, within six months to a year after inviting Christ into my life and experiencing that amazing liberation that comes from his unconditional love, well, I began to, uh, I guess to paraphrase Mark Twain, uh, God made man in his own likeness and image, and ever since then we've been returning the favor And so I began to recreate this relationship with God where he was dealing with me the way all my relationships worked, at least with those I was closest to, that I had to perform for the kingdom of God. I always had to do more. And boy, I'll tell you what, I was a busy beaver for Jesus. Did all the right things, uh, went through seminary, got great grades. Uh, I wrote a book published by uh, Thomas Nelson uh, nationally. I uh, was on television programs, invited to conferences in Washington, D.C., where you know I was considered one of the up-and-coming Christian leaders. I was involved with a thriving church. We had a great college ministry that was going on. But the problem was, even though I loved Jesus, and I knew that Jesus loved me, I was on this heavy performance trip with God. Well, during this time, I met some guys that were doing college ministry as well from Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, and they shared with me about Pastor Chuck Smith, and I was familiar with Chuck Smith. I grew up in California, and, and you know, to me, where I was coming from, the neck of the church woods that I was in, well, Chuck Smith and Calvary Chapel, that's kind of JV Christianity. You know, we really study in the hardcore stuff, and, you know, it's good if you're a babe in Christ, you're into the milk, but, you know... And I said, no, 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 you ought to listen to Pastor Chuck in the morning. And, you know, the thing that caused me to listen to Pastor Chuck was I looked at these guys and they had this same spark of simple love for Christ that I had before I got on the fast track to uh, Christian superstardom or whatever you want to call it. And so I started listening to Pastor Chuck in the morning. I used to uh, take my Sony Walkman, I know I'm dating myself there, and, you know, and listen uh, Chuck Smith was on at 7.30 in the morning, and I'd listen as I'd walk to work, and you know, I'd have this time, and, I, you know, and rarely would Chuck say something in his studies that I hadn't studied before. I couldn't give you a breakdown of three or four different points of view on the issue. But it was the love of God that flowed through this man that I found so compelling. In fact, walking along the Pantano Wash one day, listening to Pastor Chuck, I prayed a really dangerous prayer. I said, Lord, whatever it takes, I want to have a love relationship with you like this guy does. And I know what happened in heaven. I'm sure uh, Jesus probably just went, oh boy, here we go. And, And I'm sure one of the angels said, well, you heard him. You know, he asked you. And God answered that prayer. But he answered in a pretty radical way. Within three weeks of praying that prayer, I discovered that my wife was having an affair with my best friend who was leading my small group ministry in our college group. And I also discovered I was the last one in the church to find out about it. Everybody else kind of knew. Well, when you go through a situation like that where you're open and you're vulnerable and you're trying to do the right thing and and then the blow of infidelity comes your way, Man, I'll tell you what, I, I just looked at my life at that point 
and it was like a spiritual hydrogen bomb had gone off. All the things that I had built up, all the things that I'd worked for, all the things I'd, I'd strived to accomplish had just been absolutely leveled at that point. You know, I would find myself quoting little snarkyisms that you hear in sermons from time to time. Like, if it doesn't work at home, don't export it. And I thought, what business, what right do I have to be in ministry if my own marriage has gone this far south? Well, uh, bottom line was I was going to leave the ministry. And during that time, the guys at Calvary Chapel of Tucson came alongside of me, Pastor Robert Furrow and Keith Moody and Randy Ritchie, and they were just a tremendous support group to me. They cried with me. They, they, they prayed for me. I started even going to the services on Thursday night. It's a little dicey going to another church where you're on staff with another church to find your spiritual encouragement. But at the end of this process, with things going bad to worse, attempts at reconciliation in my marriage were just uh, seemingly uh, just uh, causing the pain to become more intense and the division between my wife and I to become more and more Grand Canyon-esque as the time went on. Uh, during that period of time, I was invited to attend a pastor's conference at Costa Mesa. And during that pastor's conference, I went and sat in on this teaching, and I heard these Calvary guys, and man, it was like God was saying to me, wow, you know, you found your home. This is where you fit in. And I thought, this is great, you know. And and I'd been offered a, uh, a position with Salem Broadcasting as a program director in Northern California. And I figured, well, I can work in radio and I won't do any damage to the cause of Christ any longer. And, and uh, I was uh, going to uh, start that new position in the matter of a couple of months. And, and then at the end of the conference, an amazing thing happened. There was Pastor Chuck sitting up front uh, all by himself. Now, if you've ever gone to a Calvary Pastors Conference, you know there's usually about 80 pastors that are trying for a little face time with him. <coughs> and uh, there he was all by himself. So I thought, well, you know, I don't even know this guy, but I'll go up and thank him for the conference. And I shook his hand and I said, you know, I'm Scott Richards and I, I'm leaving the ministry, but, but wherever I go, I'm sure I'll be a part of a Calvary chapel. And he looked at me and he said, why are you leaving the ministry? And I said, well, it's a big, ugly story. And he goes, well, look, before you make any final decisions, why don't you and I sit down and have a conversation. Well, I didn't realize this, but in a church numbering 40,000 people, Pastor Chuck got over 70 requests for appointments every day. But he made time in his calendar. I told him I'd be out in another three weeks to meet with the Salem people. And, and so there I sat in his office, sitting down with this guy that I looked up to right up there with Billy Graham. And, and he asked me the question, why are you leaving the ministry? And I started in, to my tale of woe. You know, sometimes I believe that the only way that God really gets through to the key issues of our lives is by putting us precisely in that place. You've had the opportunity today to hear a lot of different testimonies by a lot of different people that have shared sometimes with searing honesty about the struggles that they've gone through in their lives. But I, I want to share something with you as this conference wraps up tonight. That's not an unusual experience. As a matter of fact, sometimes in order to truly get a hold of our lives, truly show us what God's love is like in our lives, He has to bring us to a place 
where everything else that we've relied on in our lives is absolutely and totally taken away. Because it is only then that we begin to discover the meaning of that beautiful biblical word, grace. Grace. God's unmerited, undeserved favor. The fact that, even as Bethany mentioned, God loves us and we can't even figure out why. When we're so unfaithful to Him, He's so faithful to us. That is His grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. And it's only when you come to the place where you cease striving, where you cease all your schemes, all your plans, all your strategies, all the stuff you learn in your family of origin about how to make relationships work and how to get what you need and, and, and what you want out of relationships, that suddenly grace comes alive. Three things I'd like to share with you uh, just real briefly tonight about what grace is all about. It's found in one of my favorite passages of Scripture, and I come by this honestly because this was really an anchor for me. This was a real lifesaver for me when I was going through that, that time where everything literally in my life seemed to be taken away. It's found in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Three things I want you to understand about grace from this powerful passage of Scripture. First of all, Paul says that the grace of God has appeared to all men. The grace of God, again, that unconditional love, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. You know, we, we ask ourselves the question sometimes. So we talk about being saved, but the big issue is saved from what? Well, the fact that you're at this conference today gives me a pretty good idea that you've got a pretty good answer to saved from what, but a lot of people don't. A lot of people tend to think I'm basically a good person, I'm, I'm okay, even in situations where, you know, say, uh, lust is just considered standard operating procedure. You look around, everybody else is the same way, so what's the big deal? I guess I'm as, as good as the next person. But when we're really honest with ourselves, we look deep in our hearts, we realize there's an emptiness there. We realize that if God's a righteous judge on Judgment Day, we're in big-time trouble. In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans chapter 3 described our condition this way, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. Together they become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. You know, I, I call your attention to that word unprofitable there. Uh, the word unprofitable it, it carries the idea in the original language of uh, milk that's gone bad. And I don't know if you've ever had a personal encounter with milk that's gone bad. You know, back in my bachelor days when, you know, looking at expiration dates on stuff in my fridge seemed to be uh, rather optional. Uh, you know, I've, I've had a couple of close encounters with milk gone bad. You know how it works. You know, you, you know when you're a bachelor, you decide you're going to have, you know, a, a, a nice balanced 
a healthy meal. You know, you get out a big bowl, you put the Fruit Loops in it, and then you get the milk out from the fridge. And, you know, normally it's just a wonderful experience. The wonderful milk comes out, and there with your big old uh, hanging spoon, you sit in front of the TV watching ESPN, and the shoveling begins, and life couldn't be any, get any better. But uh, on a couple of occasions, I, I would start to pour out the milk, and something was amiss. Instead of white liquid, there was clear liquid that would come out of the milk carton. And then instead of, you know, the nice smooth cascade of falling milk, this big glop of cottage cheese-like substance would land upon my Fruit Loops. And when it would land upon my Fruit Loops, the next thing was, man, I'll tell you what, they say they found uh, Saddam Hussein's stash of chemical weapons in Iraq this last week. Man, that's got nothing on the smell that comes from that glop that falls on your perfectly good Fruit Loops at that point. Now, you know you're a real bachelor, by the way. If you look at that and you go, I think I can salvage this. (laughs) Do you realize that when God looks at us, he sees us like that glop that falls on the fruit loops. Start out okay, you know, perfectly good, perfectly nutritious, but something's gone amiss. We're spoiled. And you know, one thing you discover about something, when, when, when something gets spoiled, it's really hard to unspoil it, you know? I mean, Solomon said, that which has been bent cannot be made straight again. That's really true about our hearts. You see, we're not just a little off game. We're like that foul, disgusting, odorous substance that comes out of that expiration date optional milk carton in God's eyes. We are in desperate need of salvation. And that's exactly what God's unconditional love brings to us. Now, how do we know that that is true. The grace of God that brings salvation, we're told, has appeared to all men. The word appeared there carries the idea of being presented in an unmistakable way, an unavoidable way, that God has, in fact, given us this blessing of his unconditional love and has presented it in such a way that we don't need to guess about it. Boy, you know, that's what I love. Uh, about the Word of God. As I say, as a, a former atheist and an avowed skeptic, the one thing that I always uh, found frustrating with Christians was they seem to have this, well, you know, I just believe, you know, Jesus makes me feel good, you know, I'm just into Jesus. And, you know, I just thought, well, why should I belong to your religious country club? You know, I don't even like you very much, you know. You just seem weird to me. I just, well, why should I join your group? And they didn't really have much more to say about being a Christian than that. It was just well, this is what I'm used to or what I grew up with or, you know, what I believe or I had some feeling or experience. What a shock to me to discover that when I looked into the Scriptures, I found there were solid reasons to believe in Jesus. The hardcore fact of history of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is written across the Word of God. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, Peter said, we didn't follow cleverly devised fables. We've made knowing to you the, the coming and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we're eyewitnesses of his majesty. You know, it's another whole Bible study, but the authenticity of the message of Jesus Christ that we have, his love for us that caused him to leave heaven, walk here on earth as a man, live a perfect life we could never live, die on a cruel Roman cross and raise from the dead, is literally written in the blood of the apostles who were willing to die, not for a feeling, not for joining a movement, not for a philosophy, but for the hard fact 
that Jesus rose from the dead. So how do we know that God really loves us? God does not want you to leave that to chance. And there's a real important reason for this. And I share this at this recovery-oriented session because one of the great stumbling blocks that I think you will encounter sooner or later as God puts your life back together, as you go through the ups and the downs and the in-betweens, and, you know, I just really appreciated the candidness and the honesty of, of the video that we saw because there are still struggles. There are still times where we're going to hit the wall. There are still going to be times where we're going to blow it and blow it badly. And, uh, you know, there's going to be either sent down from central casting, some legalistic Christian who's going to say, and you call yourself a believer in Jesus. Or, or even in the back of our mind, our own conscience is going to be saying to us, kind of like Mrs. Job, do you still hold your integrity? Curse God and die. Go eat worms. You're done. You know how we keep going? You know how we continue to believe that God loves us? with an unconditional, everlasting love. It's not because I feel that way, because my emotions are subject to change without notice. Some cult groups will say to you, you know, well, you should believe in our group, pray about it, and if you have a burning in your bosom, then you'll know it's true. Well, how do you know that wasn't a bad taco? You know, we've got to have a faith that's based on more than this, especially when temptation comes knocking on your door again. Especially when the same old habits and the same old ways of medicating are saying, come on back, it was so much fun. Oh, you can do it once, it's no big deal. You know, remember all the good times we have. If you are resting on your feelings as your foundation for your faith, when temptation comes knocking, you're going to collapse like a house of cards. Unless you can take a step back and say, irrespective of my feelings, irrespective of my temptations, irrespective, of, of, of where I am right now in this moment, it does not change the fact, the fact that God loves me and sent His Son to die for me. Well, the grace of God that brings salvation, Paul writes, has appeared to all men. And, and, and again, this grace isn't some kind of ooey-gooey, over-the-top experience. You know, when, when I was sharing my faith back in the, the groovy 70s, you know, uh, I'd hear people say things like, wow, you know, Jesus really just gives me a great sense of peace. And back then, sometimes people respond by saying, well, transcendental meditation gives me peace, man. What, what, what's the difference? Well, here's the difference. The grace of God that comes to us isn't just some kind of over-the-top experience. It's not just a way to sort of categorize Holy Ghost goosebumps or, or spirit shift. It is something that makes a concrete difference within our lives, a measurable difference in our lives. Notice the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And this is how you know you got it. How do you know if you've really got God's grace? Grace starts working on you. It starts changing your heart and your life from the inside out. The first thing that grace teaches us is what to reject in life. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts Paul writes, you know, we've talked much in this conference about the power of lust and how lust is so deceptive and how lust will take over your life and how lust is, is it, it always reminds me of those uh, survivor man things you see on TV, you know, the dual survival or thing. Now they've got naked survival. I don't know what else they're going to do after this. But, but when you see people that are trying to survive a shipwreck, 
Yeah, have you ever noticed on those those programs when someone's lost at sea, the boat goes down, they're there in the you know the life raft, and they're just trying to be spotted. After a few days, and the water runs out, the biggest danger in that situation is what? There's water all around you, but you can't drink it. So you start drinking that salt water, and it's going to start uh, increasing dehydration, not causing you to get hydrated. It's going to cause your kidneys to shut down. It's going to cause your brain to start malfunctioning. And those who start even just sipping a little seawater at first and taking it and taking it, pretty soon they just go nuts. You know, they'll say, oh, there's the rescue boat, and they walk right off, and the sharks get them. You know, lust works the same way. It looks like water, doesn't it? It looks like it's going to be satisfying to the soul. It looks like it's going to be everything that you need. And, and yet every time you take it in, it just gets worse, doesn't it? It just makes you more thirsty than you were when you started. The grace of God says, deny that. Deny worldly lust. But notice what, what else it says. Deny ungodliness. Now, I know we can have a very sanitized view of ungodliness. We can say, well, ungodliness, I know that. That is, people who drink, smoke, and chew and go with girls who do. And I don't do that. Some pretty godly do. Well, you've got to understand something. Ungodliness runs a lot deeper than that. You can be attending church. You can be underlining your Bible. You can go into Christian conferences and still be as ungodly as the day is long. How? By trying to manage your life without God. By trying to manage your life in the same old way you've always managed your life. Are you an approval seeker, a perfectionist like me? Man, the minute you go down that path, you're trying to fill a void in your life that only God can fill. It's ungodly. It excludes God from doing what he wants to do within our lives. Are you an individual that, say, is addicted to pornography or has been involved, say, with infidelity or things along this line? It's ungodliness in the sense that you're trying to take something physical and use it to meet a spiritual need within your heart. Anytime that you do that, I don't care how godly it looks, you can be involved with 15 committees at the church. You can have this reputation. You can be teaching Bible studies. You can be traveling across the country. But if that's what makes you okay inside, if that's your sense of satisfaction and fulfillment in life, you're ungodly. You're trying to fill in your heart something that will never bring you satisfaction. You know, it always reminds me, you, you want to find out if you're knee-deep in ungodliness? Uh, remember Jesus' statement to the woman at the well. Everyone who drinks of this water, he said, will thirst again. But the water I give him will become in him a well raising up to everlasting life. Well, that's the choice. We can have the real deal, or we can have the world's knockoffs. And notice, we are not only told the grace of God what to reject, but what to accept. It's not just a negative no, no, no kind of thing. Yeah, God does have boundaries. God does have stay out, or this is going to cause you trouble sort of thing. Because God sees how destructive all these things are. But notice there's a positive message here. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now, the word soberly there doesn't just mean the idea that you're not, you know, throwing back, you know, Mickey's big mouths or, you know, having some ripple with a straw or something like that. Not getting tanked on the weekend. To live soberly means to look at life with clarity, with, with, with wisdom, with a sense of having all your faculties together. 
you know, I, I'll be the first one to uh, confess to you guys that I do not drink. I don't drink alcohol at all. Now, that isn't because I believe that the Bible teaches total abstinence from alcohol for everybody. You know, Jesus made wine at a wedding. The wine steward said, you know, you've saved the best for last. The only way you've got good wine versus inferior wine is it ain't grape juice, gang. You know, good wine is aged. Bad wine, not so much. You know, again, Paul told uh, Timothy, his protege, have a little wine every once in a while for your stomach's sake, your frequent illnesses. I don't believe that the Bible teaches total absence from alcohol, so why don't I drink at all? Because there's five generations of al- three generations, I should say, of alcoholics I know of in my family. And, and I know that when I was a teenager and I started drinking, I liked it. I liked the feeling that I got when I drank. And God really immediately said, no, that's not something that I have for you. One thing I've discovered about alcohol is this. And, you know, I was in a non-Christian fraternity when I was at the U of A. I was the only guy in the house who didn't drink. I, I joined because I wanted to, to reach out and, 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 you know, do a Bible study there. And, and God blessed it wonderfully. But one of the things that's fascinating about being the only guy that doesn't drink at these parties is you, you discover something. Alcohol makes people stupid. You know, the, the more you drink, the stupider you get. You think you're being with it and urbane and sophisticated and, and all that. And you don't realize just how dumb you've become when you drink. So this idea of living soberly, you know, again, I don't need any help being stupid, so I don't drink. Okay, I can be stupid all by myself without chemical enhancement. But the idea of living soberly means seeing things the way they are, seeing things clearly. Righteously doesn't mean self-righteously. It means living your life in a way where you want to have your right relationship with God enhanced rather than destroyed, rather than diminished. That's what righteous living is all about. And godly in the present age. Godly means that when people look at us, they see Jesus. They see the Lord present in our lives. That's what real godliness is all about. Now, notice these are the things to accept. We found out what to reject. That is reject worldly lust. We found out what to accept. That is to allow the Lord to do this wonderful work of the character of Jesus in our lives, to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. But notice as well, the grace of God also tells us what to expect ultimately in life. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the grace of God tells us something. It tells us that no one's ever going to love you like God loves you. You know, no one is ever going to be able to meet that need in your heart for unconditional love and acceptance like God will. And the more you begin to understand how much God loves us and how much Jesus loves us, and that's been talked about in some very beautiful ways at this conference today. The more you discover that, the more you begin to find yourself going, man, Lord, I, I can't wait for your return. I can't wait to see you face to face. I can't wait for that moment. We're, we're, we're kind of like uh, well-loved children who wait for the first sound of that garage door going up at the end of the day when that, 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 that beautiful parent comes back and we see him again. You ever seen in an airport, you know, a, a fellow comes back from a business trip and you see them down by the, the luggage carousel and they're getting their luggage off and, 
you see, you know, three little kids running full speed and going, Daddy! And they've been counting the minutes. They've been counting the days till Daddy gets back from that trip. That's the heart that God gives us when we experience His grace. We tasted and seen that the Lord's good, but we realize that with Him, the best is yet to come. So grace works within our lives. We're saved by grace, not by works, but boy, grace does a wonderful work within your life that no religious ritual, no religious routine, no matter how well worked, no matter how peppered with Bible verses might be inflicted upon you, can ever do. It changes us from the inside out. Why is that? Well, well look at how this, this ends up. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. They might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Notice the priorities of grace. What God's love does in our lives. Man, it focuses your attention and your life on Jesus. I find that when I'm looking at the Lord, you know, sometimes those vain things in the world that charm me most lose their power. As I realize how much greater Jesus is than all of that. I realize how much more he's brought fulfillment to my life than all of that. The book of Hebrews chapter 12 says we are to look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's how you lay aside the weight that so easily entangles and the sin that causes us to stumble. Focus in on the person of Jesus. And, and notice the freedom that's involved here. I love this. He redeemed us from every lawless deed. Do you realize that your bail has been made? Even more than that, your penalty has been paid. The prison doors that locked you in have been cast wide open by the love of Jesus Christ. Jesus paid a price we could never pay to save us in ways that we could never dream of. We don't have to stay stuck. We don't have to stay in that same old trap ever again. If any man be in Christ, we are told, any person, there are new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. God gives you a brand new life when the grace of God comes to you. And finally, just this beautiful outflow of this, he wanted to purify himself, his own special people, zealous for good works. Man, Lord, in light of all that you've done for me, I, I want to serve you. I want to do things not in order to be accepted by you, but because I've been accepted by you. And boy, that's all the difference in the world. And I guess that brings us back to where this message started. Sitting across the desk from Chuck Smith. Sitting down with him and having to explain to him why I was going to leave the ministry. And he said, well, I understand you're going to leave the ministry. Why is that? And so I started into this tale of woe with all the ugly details and how things had gone from bad to worse. And just, you know, I, when I was sharing with him, I just, it was just, you, you want to put your best foot forward when you meet somebody that you really look up to and respect. You've got a spiritual hero, right? And, and I'm just leading with the bad stuff. And he just stared at me across the desk. And finally, as I was going into detail about you know, what a loser I was and, and why I was going to leave ministry and go to work in radio, he stopped me. He stopped me. He goes, hold on just a second. And he stared at me. And, and I don't know how familiar you are with the teaching of Chuck Smith, if you've ever heard him on the radio or heard his tapes. You know that Pastor Chuck Smith is the master of the long pause. And, and I want to tell you something. What he, you know, sometimes you 
listen on the radio and you're like, is the station out? Or, you know, they lose it. You know, is he going to say something again? But he just stopped me. And, and, and he's the master of long pause in personal conversation. He says, hold on just a second. And he stared at me and, and, and he said, you know, God's laying something on my heart I want to share with you. And he paused again. And he just stared at me with those, those eyes of his that just looked straight through you into your soul. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, okay, I, I get it. He's going to say, well, you know, not everybody's cut out to be in the ministry and you're such a loser, you know, just uh, you know, don't, don't ruin anybody else's life. You know, get out of my office, you're wasting my time. He stared at me and he goes, you know, I really see God's hand on your life. And you could have knocked me over with a feather because I did not see God's hand on my life at that moment. I thought I was an embarrassment to his kingdom. And he said, even more, I think you and I are going to have a good ongoing relationship. And I want to tell you something. It was as if the Lord spoke to my heart in this moment, and I really believe that He did, saying, you've given up on you, but I haven't given up on you. And if you're not going to look at my word and what my word says about how committed I am and how much I loved you with an everlasting love, how I've drawn you with loving kindness, how you're not in my kingdom because you're a credit to it, if you're not going to listen to what my word says about that, well, maybe you'll listen to this guy that's sitting across the desk that you looked up to. And that was the grace of God to me at that point. And lo and behold, as time went on and, and uh, events transpired, Chuck ended up creating a position for me on his staff. I never did go to work for Salem Broadcasting. Uh, in fact, my position when I first came on staff with Chuck was to be his editor of his books. And the book project that he gave to me to work on as his editor for the first time was his notes on the book of Galatians. And what I would do is I'd take the raw transcript that a secretary would type out of, of his sermons, his, his CDs on Galatians, and I would take it and I would convert it into a literarily acceptable format. And, and that's really challenging to take raw transcript and, and do that. I mean, with all the ums and the ahs and the, the run-on sentences and so forth, while preserving the voice. The bottom line was this. And, 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 and Chuck was crazy like a fox in doing this. For the first six months I was on staff with him, for 50 hours a week, all I would do was go through and focus in on his teaching on grace, grace, and more grace. In fact, the end product of this ended up being a book that was published by the Word for Today called Why Grace Changes Everything. And I want to tell you something. You can go to seminars like this and be encouraged, and, and, and I hope that you do. And I hope that everything that's been said here today lets you know that you're not alone in your struggle with lust. You know, it's the old adage that churches aren't hall of fames for holy people. They're hospitals for the hurting. And if you're hurting and you've struggled, this is where you need to be. You know, Bo and I sometimes have, have shared this idea that there's like this culture of confession 
that God has created here where we can speak with loving honesty to one another and not allow sin that thrives in the dark to avoid coming into the light where it can really be dealt with. You know, and you can go through all of these things and you can hear these amazing stories and, and, and you can, can hear about how people have, have overcome it and it's all well and good, but it's never enough. It's never enough no matter what you're dealing with. Maybe you're like me and, and, and you were an approval seeker and a perfectionist and that caused you to make bad choices down through time and, and be this complete phony for Jesus because you just wanted everybody to like you and, and all this other stuff. And, and God had completely nuke my life before I could finally come to the place of authentically receiving his love. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe your sins run, you know, on the relative scale darker than that. Maybe, you know, more shameful than that. But the bottom line is this. All of us have one thing in common. We're all that glop sitting in the fruit loops of life without Jesus. But Jesus comes and takes that glop and he heals it and he makes it whole and he makes it into something beautiful. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word workmanship is the Greek word poema. It means poem. You're his masterpiece. You're a work of art. I know some of you just feel like you're a, you know, a, some fake rubber throw-up sitting on the ground. That's not who you are. You feel like you're a child's scribble or, or something that will never amount to anything in this life. That's not who you are. In the hands of Jesus Christ, he's going to make you beautiful, beautiful in his time and give you a beautiful message of hope that will not only bless your heart but make you a blessing to others as well. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace. We sing about it. We even talk, talk about our, our prayers before meals as saying grace. But it's only enough when we live grace. When we come to that place of understanding how much you love us and that we can't add a single thing to what's been done for us. My prayer as we wrap up this time in your word is if there are any here that have never received that grace, they would realize that you don't call them to, to change their lives and then come to you. You call them to come to you and then you will change their life. Father, I pray that we would not allow religion to get the cart before the horse and try to somehow redeem and reconcile ourselves through our own power and strength. It's a fool's errand. And Father, for those that wonder why their lives have had to come to such a seemingly destructive end, what a beautiful thing it is to discover that sometimes you have to clear out the stuff that we've built with our own two hands. And bring it down to the level of a foundation before you can make us and build us into something beautiful, a beautiful temple that you yourself will dwell in. Thank you for loving us that much. Thank you for giving us that grace that has appeared to all men. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for having me here today.